If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 7. Students in the second year of high school are called, do you know? Sophomores. Why would you call 16-year-olds sophomores? The word soph is from the same word we get philosophy, means wisdom. And the word more comes from the same word we get moron. It's the idea of being so wise that you actually don't know much. In fact, a psychology actually has a name for this. It's, ca- it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you've even he- ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. It means that the less you know about a subject, the more you don't know how much you don't know. So if I don't know what I don't know, I think I'm pretty good. And what happens is if you ask somebody any question about anything, most people think that they're above average in their understanding of it. But most people know very, very little. And you're going to see that today we're in this situation. We are in the middle of chapter 7 of John. And in chapter 7, it is the temple, it is the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. We see that John usually keeps his timing by the feasts and the, the, the different feasts that people are required to go to Jerusalem for. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem when he has to come to Jerusalem, like everybody else has to go. And he is now about six months away from the cross. So Feast of Tabernacles is the second week-ish of October. So the Feast of Tabernacles is this week in Israel. This was the last week. That's why the the attack that happened in Israel happened on the Feast of Tabernacles, because it's still today, as it was then, packed house. Everybody is home, everybody's off work, everybody, it's a big party. Everybody camps for a week. It is probably a blast to do that. And there were so many people in town. Jesus' brothers at the very beginning of this chapter wanted him to go because if you remember from chapter 6, so many people abandoned Jesus. Not just his enemies, not just scads of people who could have been his disciples, But not only just did his enemies leave him, but at the end of chapter 6, many of the people that had followed Jesus had left him. Well, his brothers were not believers. It said that very clearly. They they did not yet believe in him. Uh, They will come. It takes the resurrection for his family to actually see that Jesus was God Almighty. It It took raising from the dead for them to understand what they had always had all of their lives. But they wanted him to go where there was a big crowd. They wanted him to go where that there would be people to see him. Maybe he could do a miracle. Maybe people would uh, start joining the Jesus bandwagon. They wanted him to market himself better. And so Jesus waits because in Jerusalem, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the religious leaders had already determined that he had to die. And he had not been back since the spring. He was there at the last Passover. They were completely wanting to kill him. Jesus has stayed in Galilee for the whole time. So for six months, he's been in Galilee working specifically with the disciples, teaching them, pouring his life into them. Jesus didn't shoot squirt guns at people, okay? Jesus took 12 people and poured his life into those 12 people. And that's how we're to do it. We 
we will have a word for the Lord, for people that we don't know, uh, for people that know us very, very shallowly, but we are to pour our lives into each other in such a way that, that what God is doing in our lives will continue through other people's lives as well. So we see now that Jesus held back and did not come to, to the feast until the midpoint. Now, during this midpoint, um, it was too late for the people, uh, the leaders, to actually get him. There were just too many people around. It would have been too big of a deal to arrest him, even though they tried to do it in this passage twice. They tried to arrest him twice in these ten verses we're going to read today, but they couldn't. And so we're going to see, we're going to see two weeks ago, he comes, he comes, and while he is in the coming, everybody's talking about him. And they're talking about his character. They want to know whether he's good or bad. And there was a dispute. There was a big bunch of people that thought he was good, and there were a big bunch of people who thought that he was bad. Then last week we saw that last week we were concerned not with whether Jesus is good or bad, but whether what he is teaching is actually true or false. So what is his message? What was his, what was his words? And, and Jesus basically says, these doctrines are not mine. These doctrines are God's. God is the one who did this, and I'm simply explaining to you what it is. You will know it's true. Only when you decide that you are willing to do the will of God. Now, that's very interesting because God doesn't just want a casual, uh, curious person. If you're willing to follow God, God will let you know who the Lord of glory is. If you truly want God's will, then God will see to it that you know the right. The right. He knows. But if you're not, it really doesn't even matter. Because you can know the Bible from one side or the other and miss the Lord of glory when it comes. And you'll see people today that could do those very things. So today, the question is more obvious. Is this Jesus actually Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the Messiah that we're, we're waiting for or not? And the, the people are waiting for somebody else to tell them that that's what the truth is. And God is saying, no, you decide. You have to make your decision. You can't wait for, for the crowd, because if you're waiting for the crowd, the, that bus is never going to come. So let's start. We're in chapter 7, and we're going to start reading at verse 25. This is God's word. Then some of them uh, of Jerusalem said, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know that this man and whence he is, but when Christ comes, no man knows whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he talked, saying, Ye both know me and know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, and whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ comes, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then they said unto, uh, and then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go to him that sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, 
that we shall not find him? Will he go to the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he come, you seek me and you shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. I chose this passage, first of all, because you can't preach a chapter, not in John. I, I suppose you could do a 10,000-foot overview of, of like the, the big pictures of John, but you would be, it would almost be silly to try to talk of all that God is conveying through his word to people in enormous sections of, of scripture. I, I can't do it. So I picked this passage, 10 verses, because there are six questions here. It's one question after another question, after another question, after another question. So I'm like, that caught my eye. It wasn't the words that caught my eye, it was the question marks. When I looked down and I saw one question mark after another, after another, after another, I was like, wow, these are questions. And then when I read it again and again, I realized not one of these questions were answered. Jesus responds twice, but these aren't being answered by anybody. And that's compelling. And so we're going to look at these six questions and what does it teach us and what does Jesus say um, and where, does, where are these questions answered. So let's start with 25. Then some of them of Jerusalem said, Is it not he whom they seek to kill? Now that's a rhetorical question. Nobody has to answer that question. That's a yes. Okay. What they're saying is, isn't this the guy that the leaders are trying to murder? Now, if you remember from last week, the crowd, Jesus said, I do one sign, I do one miracle among you. He told that man that was sitting on the street on a mat that had been there for 38 years, he said, get up and take up your bed and walk. And he healed him completely. And they were right on him because he had broken the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath. So they just figured Jesus, who was doing what no man had ever, ever done, was just working. It was just a day's work for Jesus. Jesus' Jesus's job was to make sick people well and dead people alive, I guess. And so he was, it was just another day at the office. And so they were after him. Um, Jesus said, I did one sign among you and you're trying to kill me. Now he's looking there's scads of people there, of course, but he's looking at the, the people who are trying to kill him. They had already decided that he absolutely has to die. And if he had come at the beginning of the feast, before the millions of people had gotten there, they would have. They would have already done it. And that's why God kept him back. God's timing trumps everything. God decides that Jesus was going to die six months later in, during the Passover. He was not going to die at the Feast of Tabernacles, and so it wasn't going to happen. Um, it, it was just... Jesus waited, and so now he's there and he's teaching, and he he tells them, "And you're trying to kill me." Well, immediately they a bunch of them just jump back at him and said, "You're crazy. You have a devil. Um, no, who's trying to kill you?" Well, they know that they're trying to kill him, and 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 he knows they know, and they know he knows they know. It's one of those situations. You have here. It's it's interesting when you get to verse twenty six. There, or even in 25, some of these people that are in the crowd do know that these religious leaders are after him. They, they do. They're not totally stupid. They can tell. They can read the room. They know that it's happening, and they're looking, and they're like, isn't this the one who they want to kill? Now, I think that is really interesting. If that's all you give me, I have to then back up and say, okay, what is, why would you say that? 
What is it that, that you're saying? So the crowd, first of all, has some, some prejudices, or at least they have some, some views. They think that Jesus is speaking boldly and that the leaders would stop him if he could. All right, I guess they're true. So this is verse 26. But lo, he speaks boldly. This is Jesus teaching boldly. And they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is very Christ? So there's two things that I wrote down that I just kind of see here that's behind the words. The first one is they assumed that Jesus' freedom was up to the leaders. That's the first thing they assumed. Because he's free and he's speaking. Well, if he's free and he's speaking, they're assuming it's because the leaders are allowing that to happen. Now, that's pretty interesting. The second thing that I wrote down was that Jesus remained free because the leaders were not sure yet. They had not stopped him or they had not arrested him. They had not taken him out of circulation because they weren't sure. Maybe the leaders have not come to a conclusion as to whether this is very Christ. Now, Christ is a, is a Greek word. It means the Messiah. This is the people that we were looking. This is the man we were looking for. Uh, we, we read today in Isaiah that God saw the, 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 in the streets there was unrighteousness, there was injustice, there was inequity. Everything was, was, was low, and God saw that there was no man to intercede for them. There was no one to, to stand and be that person who would lead them out of that. And so he put the breastplate of righteousness on him, and he sent him to be Savior. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And these people knew the Messiah were coming. And they knew that, that the Messiah would do these things that Jesus was doing. And so there were lots of people who thought he was the Messiah. Now, it's interesting. All of that scat of people who left in chapter 6 thought he was the Messiah. But when he preaches the gospel to them, they're not interested in the gospel. Jesus is completely perplexing. You think you know him? You think you're, that you're, you want things to happen the way you think you're offering yourself? And Jesus is like, no, this is not who I am. And they all go away, disappointed in Jesus. It's pretty interesting. So they think that the leaders must not know yet. Maybe they haven't come to a conclusion yet. Uh, because otherwise, he shouldn't be preaching. So I, I just think that's pretty cool. I've, I've seen it. I see it every day at school. Kids don't decide for themselves because they wait for other people to make sure that they're doing what it is so that you all go together. Everyone is lemmings. That's just the way people are. They don't decide for themselves and stand and take responsibility. You wait to see what the cool kids are doing. And that's what's happening. All these people listening to God himself teach them knowing that he's hitting the mark over and over, knowing that he's saying who they are and they recognize it. It's, it's hitting the nail every time. And they know that they're, they're, it's a masterful teacher and th that he's healing people and raising people from the dead, and they don't understand. How could it not be the Messiah? But yet, why aren't the religious leaders doing anything? And if they think he's not the Messiah, why don't they arrest him? So there really is a lot of dispute, a lot of questioning. I just see that, that here is an, just another one of these pictures of willful blindness. And it's, it's probably the most damnable thing that you could ever do, to willfully be blind, to choose to, to see what you're looking at and not understand that it has to be what you're seeing. You've already made a predetermination. 
You've already decided what you're going to decide. And that's, that's it. That it does not matter that this man can do miracles. It does not matter that he can heal the sick in front of us. That he can, that he can heal broken arms and we all see that it's not broken. He can take leprosy off of a person and we can watch that person have a baby skin right in front of our eyes and that God didn't do it. Because you decide that, you did, that that's not what's going to happen. It's impossible. That it is impossible. So there are Ivy League schools today that if you come with a Christian perspective, you will not get a Ph.D. They refuse. You, if that is, that is the mark, that you will not be a graduate from our school. You will not have a diploma from this university if you think that God created the world and sustains it. Because otherwise, we will look like fools in front of the other fools. And so people already decide what they're going to decide, and that is the idea. This is John chapter 3. This is when he was speaking to Nicodemus. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That that's the condemnation. I would rather live in darkness than have the light, and even though the light's here, I refuse to look or refuse to see with that light. This is Second Corinthians 4. But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Their unbelief is sealing the fact that they will not be able to see when it's right in front of them. That you have a blindness. Though light's hitting the back of your eye, it's doing nothing to make a response in your brain, that it's hitting your heart and you are dead to it because you've determined that you will be dead to it. It's, a, it's almost a judgment of your hardness. This is Matthew 3. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. That is frightening. Jesus said, I speak to them in parables because they see they don't see, and because they hear they don't hear. So I'm going to speak in such a way that the ones who are dead won't understand what I'm saying. I'm going to speak it in such a way that the ones who are alive will hear exactly what I'm saying, and the ones who are dead will hear the pretty words and think it's music, but not it won't do anything to me. That's Jesus is doing that. That's terrifying. That means that, that God judges me as I harden my heart. And that his judgment will be that I will not even see the glories of the gospel that's right in front of my face. And here's Jesus preaching the gospel to these people, and they're sitting there waiting to take him so that they can kill him. It's interesting. This is verse 27. We're back in John 7. It does say, it does say, how be it we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knows whence he is. So they are thinking for themselves in a little bit. It's not just that the leaders haven't decided. They already determined what they know. They're sophomores. They've already said, well, the rabbis have taught us that when the Messiah comes, we'll not know where he's from. Because evidently that was the teaching of the, of the first century rabbis, that, that it's mysterious. He's just going to come out of the east sky. He's going to show up one day like Melchizedek. And no one's going to know where he's from. And all of a sudden, he's going to lead you away and, and take Rome or whatever. And that's what the rabbis told them. Well, they were like, well, we know 
who, where he's from. This guy's from Nazareth, this podunk town somewhere in West Virginia. How in the world can anything good come from there? They know that he's from nowhere. They've already decided he can't be the Messiah. So they realize, well, we even know who his parents are. How in the world can he be God if the, if the rabbis have taught us X, Y, and Z? Do you understand when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations for whatever reason, for whatever miseducation you have or whatever hardness of heart that you have, when Jesus isn't who you think he is, um, that's not Jesus' fault. So Jesus is as Jesus has always been, and it's interesting when Jesus doesn't fit our preconceived ideas of him. The crowd is like, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. Well, since the rabbis must be true, then and that never occurred to them that they would be misinformed, didn't even thought. They were like, well, we already know how this works. We know the situation. We know this, so it can't be. They've already determined that, that the miracles, which are authentication, this is God saying God can only raise someone from the dead. God can only change someone's skin right now. God can only do that. And God is saying this is my servant and he, this is my message. But people were like, but the rabbi said, so obviously this can't be, they basically say it can't pos- be possible. This can't be possible. So, so I, I just think that's interesting. You can even know the Bible and miss it. You could even know the scriptures. These people knew the scriptures, but were rather listening to what they were taught because they knew that that can't be, you can't put God in that bucket. So this is from Matthew chapter 2. This is Herod. Now remember Herod, the Magi comes to Herod, and so what does he do? They say, well, it's a certain time, and we've seen the this, this sign that in the sky that this is happening, and that it must be happening, so we came to worship the new king. Where is he? And so uh, this is verse 4, And when he gathered the chief priests and scribes of the people, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not thou least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule the people of Israel. Then Herod, when he privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently at what time the star appeared, and then sent them back to Bethlehem and said, Go search diligently for the young child. When you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. That's interesting. Did Herod come and worship him? Did any of the scribes and chief priests that told him that this is where the Messiah was coming from, did they go to worship him? That's interesting that they would know where to look and when to look, and at the same time, it wasn't there. They, they, they missed it. These people have already closed their eyes. And it's interesting to, see, to think these are Bible scholars that have closed their eyes and they're looking right into what God had always promised from the very beginning, and they've missed it. And they deserve their miss. So this is verse 28. We're back in chapter 7. Then cried at Jesus. I underlined that. I don't know why. It seemed like an important word. Then cried out Jesus. Was Jesus in, was, was there energy coming from him when he said this? Is it in response to the deadness of their hearts? Is it a, is it a pain in his heart that made him cry out? He wasn't just holding a conversation with him. He boomed at them this, these words. You both know me and know whence I am, but I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him. For I am from him, and he has sent them, sent me. 
Do you see the contrast here? He's contrasting their knowledge of where he's from and their knowledge of what his parents are to their lack of knowledge of the fact that God has promised to send the Messiah in such a way, and they miss the big picture. They're, they've got an A-plus on the details that mean nothing, and they're missing the main idea. They don't even know what it's about, but they know, you know, every, every present participle in the sentence, but they don't know what it's talking about. And I think that's very easy. I've done that. I've done that. I've missed the forest for the trees a thousand times. John is very, this is, you've seen this over and again. John has done this, this is like sixth or seventh time you've seen this. Jesus says, I know God. I am from God. God sent me. That, that is, you cannot see this seven times in this book and not say, wait a second. God is doing this. God wrote this book. He's writing it to my mind. He's writing it to my heart. And I have just been told for the umpteenth time that God sent Jesus. He is from him. He knows him. And for that reason, I should listen to him. That it should, should concern me what he says. We're in, this is verse 30. We're back in chapter 7. Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hold on him because his hour was not yet come. So the crowds assumed wrong. If, the, if he was preaching because the, because the leaders had not made a decision about him, well, they were wrong about that. The leaders had already made, in chapter 5, they had already made a decision that he had to die. They already knew. They were going to kill him last time. They couldn't. He escaped him last time. And now they tried to get him at the beginning of the feast, and he didn't come. And so now he's in the middle of the scads of people, and they have to do something. I wrote down a quote from A.W. Pink, which I love A.W. Pink, and he wrote, they could no more take Jesus than stop the sun from shining. And I just thought, what a picture. That idea of, I want the sun to stop, 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 and they couldn't do anything. Wickedness always has a frustration when you have God's sovereignty involved. There's a wicked man is frustrated, and there is no other word for it. That's the word. I can't do what I want to do. I want to stop it, but I can't can't stop God. So they want to take him, and they couldn't take him. They couldn't lay a hand on him. That's the first time. You're going to see in these next few verses, they're going to try to arrest him again because they just have to get him off the streets. They can't let people believe because it just said some people are believing on him. This is verse 31. We'll see that there are people who are putting their faith in him because they are thinking for themselves. Not everybody on planet Earth is a lemming. Some people think for themselves. And as you, a reasonable person can look at the gospel and make a reasonable conclusion. This is not, we're all not drinking the Kool-Aid. A reasonable person can look at the gospel and make a reasonable conclusion. And every part of that is there for you. You can, you can, be, you can trust that. God doesn't say, oh, only stupid people are allowed to believe in me. All the smart people go away because, you, you know, you're too smart. Absolutely not. There's nothing that the smartest of the smart could not absolutely thrill in, and there's not anything that the simple could not say, I understand enough to have my soul saved. But you have to make a decision for yourself. You are you. Every bucket sits on its own bottom, and that's us. And you have to look at this, and the, these people are frustrated. There is no other passage than Psalm 2 to go to. This is Psalm 2 right at the beginning. Why? Do the heathens rage? 
and people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel again uh, uh, together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They are frustrated. They want to stop God and they can't. They want to stop his anointed, but they can't. They think they can. They think, and the devil rejoiced on the cross. They thought that that was it, except that, that, that the devil did not conceive that God was, was infinite in his wisdom. And the devil is just a, just a creature like us. Just a creature, finite as finite. You compare finite to infinite, and you can be as big as you want, and you're nothing. And so he couldn't understand the fact that he did not destroy Jesus in the manger when all of the babies were killed. He couldn't understand. He could not understand that he had him now, that the high priest had him, and that he was on the cross, and he was dying silently in front of the world. And he, they thought, they could, they thought he could, that he had it. This is Isaiah 14. You say, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, but thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So when the, when the nations rage against God and his anointed, and they refuse to see, they've decided what they have already decided, and they're going to do as they please, God tells them where to stand. God tells them when to do. When Judas gets up to betray Jesus, Jesus sets the time limit. You must do what you're going to do immediately. You cannot wait. It has to be right now. And he had no choice. No choice at all. Now, there is mercy here. This is back to John 7. We're in 31. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and his chief priests sent officers to take him. This is in, the, in three verses. In two verses, they've tried to arrest him twice. And they send the temple guard, people with real weapons, who are going in to scads of people and they've got their, their swords drawn and they're going to come and they're going to arrest him. And we're going to see next week when they come back, the people are like, why didn't you get him? And they said, nobody teaches like he teaches. They sat there with their sword drawn, with their mouths open, gaping at what Jesus was saying. And they're like, their own soul was pierced with the sword that they had in their hand. They understood they were listening to God. And they could not. And there was nothing they could do. You, you know, the, the flea does not own the dog, even if it thinks it does. It doesn't. And there's nothing it really can do. And if you decide that you're going to take Jesus, Jesus better be in agreement with that. And we'll see that he was. Jesus was chafing at the bit to be our Savior. He was setting his face towards Jerusalem like a flint. He decided when to lay down his life and when to rise it up again. It's interesting. That passage that we read in Isaiah 59 today, if I'd have gone all the way back to the very beginning, the verse first, it says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. In the middle of all this opposition, Jesus was saving souls in the crowd. Can you believe that? Why he did not make the sun land on the earth at that moment? Why did he not annihilate us all? Why didn't he let that be the last second that the earth ever stood on its foundation? But instead, 
he is speaking into hearts and people were melting right in front of him and coming to knowledge that he is their savior, that he must be who it was and that they had the wrong idea. And if they need to change, if there needs to be a change, it's they have to change. If they are to be reconciled with a holy God, they are the one that needs to be brought near to God. It's not that God needs to somehow understand and, and understand me and come to me in my terms. You come to God in his terms. And those people, some in the crowd, actually became alive that moment, which only frustrated the leaders even more and said, take them, take them, take them now, take them now. You can just see the, the, the guy throwing a tent for tantrum. Okay? Ever watch Robin Hood and King John is sucking his thumb? That's exactly what they're doing. They're just standing there sucking their thumb. They want him dead and they don't have any way to do it because God decides. It's just, I think, ironic that their salvation is due to their miracles of Jesus. That's what they said. Look at, look at 31. And they said, when Christ comes, will he do more miracles than these which this man has done? That's what saved them. They saw Jesus' miracles for what it was intended to be, and that was an authentication that Jesus was God's servant and that Jesus' message was God's message. But instead, what happened is they were like, he's the Messiah. And as they placed their faith upon him, Jesus' words came true, and they knew that his words were from God. But what they missed was that their salvation, that second, was way big of a miracle than anything Jesus had ever done before. What they saw that led to their salvation was a smaller miracle than their salvation. The miracle was that that person became alive. That person was translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. That there was a change eternal in his trajectory in such a way that that person was different forever than they were a moment ago that Jesus broke into the strong man's house and robbed the strong man. That's what happened. And they were like, he can take bread and just keep giving it away. Wow. And not even knowing that they had, they had just stopped being dead. And Jesus had raised them, not temporally. Lazarus dies twice. You're going to have to see that. They, he was raised. These people were raised forever. Forever and forever and forever and forever, they will know nothing but bliss because they put their trust in the one that was trustworthy. And it was God who was doing the miracles. It was God who was showing the love. It was God doing things that these people were missing and that the wicked were missing and everybody in the crowd was missing. John had heard this as in Matthew 11 in prison of the works of Christ. And he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you he that should come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered and said, go and show John these things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is what God said would happen. This is what the Messiah was to do and this is what's being done. Blessed are you if you're not offended by me. He had to very carefully, very sweetly, John in prison, about to lose his head, was losing it because he had put his faith in it and realized it was so important. I want to make sure 
why aren't you doing what we thought you were going to do? Because even John the Baptist had a, had a misunderstanding, misapprehension of him. And Jesus is kindly, kindly told him, do you not see that what you saw would, would happen is happening? That's God's, that's God's affirmation. I, I just think there's another contrast here. You see this impotent, ineffective arm of the temple garden, and you compare it to the strong arm of the Lord at the same time. Do you see? The strong arm. He says in the Psalms that the, the stars are the work of his fingers. The work of his fingers. But your salvation is the work of his strong arm. And Jesus was saving people in real time, right in front of them. And the temple guard was ineffective. And they were the ones with the swords. I just think that's interesting. Last three questions. 33, that Jesus says, yet a little while, I'm with you. And I'll go that you that sent me. You shall seek me and not find me. And where I am, you shall not come. Then the Jews said among themselves, whither will he go that will not find him? Will he go and be dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this? What does it mean, I guess is a better way to say. What does it mean that you shall seek me and not find me and where, you, where I am you can't come? He's returning to the Father. And they can't do that. They can't go to heaven. They can't come and get him. The word is near, Moses said, to your heart and to your tongue. You can't go across the sea so that you can go for it, and you can't ascend up into heaven to get it. The word came to you, came down to you, so that you would know what God has for you. The mercy he has for you came to you, because you can't go up to heaven to get anything. There's no way. I don't care. You, build, you make a flying machine, Mr. Wright. That's not enough. You go to the moon or Mars or go to the moon again. We boldly go where we've already gone. That's not enough. Like, you can't go where he went. He has to come and get you and take you where he goes. There's no other way. Second one, it says, what manner is it, what manner of saying is it? Or, sorry, second question, will he go dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? Amen, I'm happy about that. Yeah. I'm one of the Gentiles that heard that. Remember? My word will not come out of your mouth or out of your seed's mouth or out of the seed's seed's mouth for all time. Your word will make people alive and they will tell someone and make them alive and then they will tell someone and make them alive. And in 500 years, there will be people alive because of you. And you won't know it and you'll think you were a failure all your life and that you never did anything right. And God is big. You have to know it. He's big. And then the last question, what kind of question is it? That there is a spiritual divide between those who believe him and those who do not believe him. And then it's interesting, Jesus' comment sticks out in the middle like that. He said, just a little while, just a little while, these people were right on the brink of the destruction of their whole civilization. Most awful, awful thing when Titus came in and destroyed the city it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And they were just on the brink of it. They were one generation away from it, and it was all gone. And just a little while, their long-awaited Savior had come, and they missed it, and their only hope of salvation was lost. So when I hear Jesus Christ, God of heaven and earth, say to me in verse 34, Yea, just a little while, 
I have to realize that's talking to me, that I have just a little while to wait for my Savior's return. And if you do not know him, you only have just a little while before you will be called to account. So I just pray that if you have a Savior, you enjoy your Savior. And if you don't, today, we heard, was the day of salvation. Amen.